We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Professor Carol Dweck's work on mindset. We'll walk through an overview of what mindset is and the study on which it's based, and then we'll spend quite a bit of time evaluating the research to help us understand whether the effect that Professor Dweck describes is real, and if it is, what implications it has for our children and students. The topic of mindset has been on my mind, as it were, as an episode topic for a while, but I'm in the final throes of creating content for my course on how parents can support children's learning in school. And one of the topics I wanted to address there was related to mindset, so I figured I'd kill two birds with one stone and cover it here too. Professor Dweck began her research as a graduate student in the 70s, so this idea has been around for a while now. And I was once told you'd have to have been living under a rock to not have heard of it, although I confess I hadn't heard of it until not long before that. But I'll describe the theory anyway, just in case you haven't heard of it. So psychologists have been studying motivation for a long time now, and especially motivation to learn. And there are a variety of different theories on what does motivate people to learn. Research on mindsets work traces a line back to the famous psychologist Albert Bandura's theory of self-efficacy which is about how people think about what they can achieve. Self-efficacy theory says that people evaluate their perceptions of their ability at a task, the difficulty of the task, how much effort it will take to complete, the amount of help that might be needed, situational circumstances, and whether or not they've succeeded or failed in the past when they determine how much effort they are going to put into a task in front of them. The research specifically on mindset stems from a paper published in 1998 by Professor Dweck and Professor Claudia Mueller, who were both then at Columbia University, on what motivates children to learn after they've experienced success or failure. The professors conducted a series of six short experiments on 128 fifth graders, half of whom were mostly white and attended an elementary school in a small Midwestern town, and half of them were from two racially diverse schools in a large northeastern city. And I will give them kudos for testing their work on a racially diverse sample rather than testing on middle-class white children and assuming the results are applicable to all children. The professors wanted to find out whether children who were praised for being intelligent or for demonstrating effort and hard work would react differently to success or failure on a series of abstract verbal reasoning tasks taken from a standardized test. In the first test, Children were asked to choose between, quote, problems that aren't too hard, so I don't get many wrong, and then problems that are pretty easy, so I'll do well, and then problems I'm pretty good at, so I can show I'm smart, or finally, problems that I'll learn a lot from, even if I won't look so smart. This was to test what types of problems the students preferred, but they were told that they would only get to work on their choice problems if there was enough time after they'd work on pre-selected problems. So they each had the same expectations about the difficulty of what they were about to do. After four minutes of working on problems that the experimenter had selected, the experimenter scored their solutions, and no matter what score the children achieved, they were told they had solved 80% of the problems, which was a really high score. And then they were told either, you must be smart at these problems, or you must have worked hard at these problems, or a control group received no additional feedback. 
Then the children were asked again if they wanted to work on easy problems so they would look smart or difficult problems where they would learn more. But all children really received a difficult set of problems. And after four minutes of work, they were told they had only solved about half of them correctly. After receiving the negative feedback, they were asked how much they wanted to keep working on the problems, how much they enjoyed the work, how well they thought they'd done, and why they thought they hadn't done as well on the second set. Then they worked for four minutes on a final set of moderately difficult problems to test how well they performed after failure on the second set. The results showed that children who were praised for their intelligence after the first problem set considered their smartness to be significantly more important to their performance than children who were praised for their effort. 67% of the children who were told they were smart then went on to choose easier problems so they would get them right and continue to seem smart while 92% of those who received feedback about how much effort they had put in chose to work on difficult problems they would learn from. Children who were praised for their effort, as well as children in the control condition, were more likely to say that they hadn't done well on the second set of problems because they hadn't put in enough effort, while children who were praised for intelligence after their initial success attributed more of their failure to a lack of ability. Children who were praised for intelligence were less likely to want to keep working on problems than the effort or control groups enjoyed working on the problems less than the other groups, and actually got one more problem wrong in the third set than the first, even though their familiarity with the problems should have led them to achieve higher scores by then. Children in the control group only achieved an average of a tenth of a problem improvement on the third set, which children in the effort group got almost one and a quarter more problems right on average. So this is to say that praise for intelligence doesn't seem to teach children that they are smart, but rather teaches them that when they fail, they can't change their performance because it's due to an inherent ability rather than something they can change like effort. So all of that was the first of six experiments reported in this paper. The subsequent five elaborated on various aspects of the first one. In the second study, children were told they succeeded on a first set of problems and then immediately given a chance to choose what type of problems to work on next. The ones praised for intelligence still picked the easy problems, indicating the effect holds true in success and in failure. In the third study, children who were praised for their ability elected to read information about the performance of others after their second set of failure problems, while 75% of the children who were told they must have worked hard chose instead to read information that might help them solve problems more effectively in the future. In the fourth study, after doing problems, children were asked to rate how true is the statement, you have a certain amount of intelligence and really can't do much to change it, and then were offered a folder containing information about the performance of other children or information on strategies to solve problems. Children who were praised for intelligence were almost twice as likely to rate intelligence as being fixed than children praised for effort, and the control group fell in between. And it was the children who were most concerned with their performance who were the most likely to handicap themselves by sacrificing an opportunity to gain information about problem-solving strategies that might have benefited them. Studies five and six attempted to eliminate two alternate explanations for the findings, that the experimenters' perceptions of their abilities impacted the children's performance, and that the children praised for intelligence might have thought the second set of difficult problems represented an intelligence test, while the children praised for effort would not. Both outcomes supported the original study's results. I want to take a short detour here and give us a bit of historical context, because it turns out that this study was published at a very interesting point in our development of theories about how children learn. You might remember that we did an episode a while back on self-esteem, which was all the rage starting in the early 1970s. A book called Your Child's Self-Esteem that's actually still in print today 
advocated for increasing children's beliefs that they, quote, have the capacity to succeed and this will, quote, turn on their go power (laughs) and, quote, help motivate them to learn. It can take a while for psychological trends to catch on, but in 1990, the state of California released a report stating that low self-esteem is linked to a variety of negative outcomes like poor academic results, drug and alcohol abuse, crime and violence, poverty, and chronic welfare dependency. And as a result, schools everywhere began doing everything they could to boost students' self-esteem. By 1996, when professors Mueller and Dweck surveyed parents about what they thought about children's perceptions of their ability and motivation to succeed, 85% of respondents thought that praising a child's ability and intelligence when they perform well on a test is necessary to make them feel they are smart. The pendulum began to swing the other way in 2003 when Professor Roy Baumeister and his colleagues published an immense 44-page meta-analysis of the research on self-esteem, which called into question all of the findings of the California Task Force report and found little evidence that self-esteem causes the host of positive outcomes it's commonly believed to cause. And secondly, that parents tend to praise children with low self-esteem, even more than children with high self-esteem, and that this praise would lead the children with low self-esteem to choose easier drawing tasks just like the children who were told they were intelligent chose easier problems in Professor Dweck's test. So self-esteem went out of favor right around the time when Professor Dweck's work was ramping up and mindset theory was poised to take over the baton of the next parenting and pedagogical fad. So now let's look at some of the criticism of Dweck and Mueller's paper. This first one is from what I'll call a non-traditional source, and that's blogger Scott Alexander, which is the pseudonym of a psychiatrist who lives somewhere on the West Coast of the U.S., He expresses extreme surprise that changing a mere three words between the intelligence and effort groups, either you must be smart at these problems or you must have worked hard at these problems, was enough to make any difference at all, never mind the spectacular outcomes that we just saw. Alexander says, this is a nothing intervention, the tiniest ghost of an intervention. The experiment had previously involved all sorts of complicated tasks and directions. I get the impression they were in the lab for at least half an hour. And the experimental intervention is changing three short words in the middle of a sentence. And he goes on to cite the incredible differences between the results of the children in the different conditions. On the flip side of this perspective, I discussed this issue with Dr. Dina Weisberg recently because I was trying to understand why children's books about people of different races fail to change children's attitude about people of races different from their own. And she said she actually wasn't surprised that Dr. Dweck's study was able to shift children's mindset by only changing three words because these are comments directly on children's performance by an authority figure, rather than just being something that's discussed in a book. And Dr. Weisberg felt that the direct comment is much more powerful, which is another reiteration of the argument that we have to discuss things with our children that we think are important, rather than just hoping they will absorb it from their environment. Scott Alexander also traces Professor Dweck's publications from her time as a PhD student at Yale, and finds a study for which the abstract says, quote, Those subjects who persisted in the face of prolonged failure placed more emphasis on the role of effort in determining the outcome of their behavior, end quote. Yet the results section of the paper show that children who attributed their success or failure to any stable factor, whether that was effort or ability, performed better on a problem-solving task than those who did not. The results weren't statistically significant because there were only 10 participants in that part of the experiment, and it's hard to get statistically significant results from such a tiny sample size, but they did hold true across the success and failure condition for both males and females. In a follow-up paper on another tiny sample of 12 children, the findings are described as showing that, quote, persistent and helpless children do not differ in the degree to which they attribute success to ability 
But in fact, the persistent children in the study did have a higher belief in the importance of ability. But again, the result isn't statistically significant because of the small sample size. Finally, in another follow-up paper, Professor Dweck and a colleague make the following statement in their discussion section. It was particularly noteworthy that while helpless children made the expected attributes to uncontrollable factors, the mastery-oriented children did not offer explanations for their failures, end quote. Yet her own data in the results section of the very same paper show this statement to be false. Yes, the helpless children were more likely to attribute their failure to their lack of ability, and the children who believed effort was important were more likely to say their lack of effort was the problem. But the effort-oriented children were also more than three and a half times as likely as the helpless children to say the reason they failed was because the experimenter wasn't fair, and six times as likely to say that bad luck was the reason for their failure. This flies in the face of decades of research showing that attributing either success or failure to luck gives people the idea they have no control over their situation, and that it's better to attribute to ability than bad luck. Professor Dweck finds that children who believe effort is important but flub her problems then go ahead and blame their failure on unfairness or bad luck. In early 2017, a blogger named Nick Brown, who doesn't state his qualifications, but says he and a colleague demonstrated a technique for detecting some kinds of reporting errors in article journals. They applied their technique to Mueller and Dweck's original paper because it had lots of tables of results with means and standard deviations and small sample sizes that their technique could use. They found 17 inconsistencies out of 50 means reported in the paper. So they got in touch with Dr. Dweck, and to her credit, she quickly responded to say she would look at it, and within a month, she had produced a 16-page paper explaining the errors. Some were attributed to unclear or admitted reporting in the article, and most of the rest were typos or transcription errors. I mention this only because if you choose to look into mindset or yourself, then you may come across this idea of errors in the paper, and I wanted you to know that I looked into it. Though 17 out of 50 is kind of a lot of errors, none of them seem to have impacted the results of the study. The big issue I see, though, is that the results of the main study on which all the subsequent work is based has never been replicated, which is astonishing for such a seminal work, because replication is considered a necessary part of the checks and balances on scientific data. Indeed, two researchers at the University of Edinburgh tried, but were specifically unable to replicate the findings. Their work hasn't been published in a journal, but you can read it online for yourself through a link in the references. And secondly, Professor Dweck's own research as a grad student seemed to contradict the results she said she found in the Mindset study. Yet she went ahead and published the book Mindset in 2006, in which she coined the now famous terms fixed mindset and growth mindset, with the fixed mindset being the attribution of success to fixed traits like intelligence, and the growth mindset the attribution of success to elements within the individual's control, like effort. In the years between 2006 and the new edition's publication in 2016, a number of researchers, many of whom are or have been Professor Dweck students or direct colleagues, have picked up the baton on the mindset research, and we'll discuss their findings in a minute. But firstly, I wanted to detour once again to tell you about my own experience at reading the book. I read it primarily from the perspective of wanting to know its relevance to my daughter, but I was really surprised to find it also relevant to my own life. Now, I have never been good at drawing. I've never had any kind of art instruction beyond a frustrating exercise in primary school in which we were to copy a painting and I spent the entire class trying to match a single color of paint and ended up with a bucket full of mixed paint in nothing approaching the right color. So I'd always just assumed that there are some kinds of people in the world who can draw and others who can't, and I'm one of the ones who can't. In the book, Professor Dweck showed some self-portraits of people who thought they couldn't draw just like me, 
And they looked pretty much how I would draw myself, really basic self-portrait. Then she had those very same people go through a drawing technique class and do self-portraits at the end, and they were actually astonishingly good. Not professional artist good, but legitimately looks like a real person rather than a stick figure good. So good that I tracked down a copy of the book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which uses the same techniques as the ones used in the class described in the mindset book, and I set out to see if I could draw. And, shockingly, it turns out that I sort of can. So if you access this show through my website, you probably saw the picture of the running shoe in the header image. Well, I drew that. If you don't access the show through my website, then head on over there right now and subscribe. Because not only do you get to see my amazing drawings, but I also send out cool newsletters to my subscribers with information on new research and child development, and also calls for questions on topics that I'm researching and other fun stuff. So I'm not going to claim that my shoe drawing is a masterpiece, but it's recognizably a shoe and it's a complex shoe. And it's something I would never have attempted to do and wouldn't have even known how to attempt to do before I read the book. My husband got me some drawing supplies for Christmas that year, right before I got busy working on master's degrees and starting this podcast. And now I'm finished with those. I'm actually starting to get back into it again, because it turns out that if I put effort into it, I can actually draw. So despite the tenuous nature of the studies underpinning the book mindset, subsequent researchers have really taken the idea and run with it. Not much of that research has looked at children who are our focus in the toddler and preschool years, but Elizabeth Gunderson at the University of Chicago, along with Carol Dweck and others, conducted a study in which researchers visited 53 children and parents in their homes three times at four-month intervals, starting at 14 months of age, ostensibly for a study on language development. The researchers recorded typical daily interactions and then coded these interactions as process praise, like, you must have tried hard, although it also encompassed good job and good running. Person praise implied that the child possessed a fixed positive quality like good girl and big boy, and other praise included things like good and wow. When the children were in second or third grade, they answered some questions about the motivational frameworks on two visits three months apart. Praise varied between 0.5 and almost 8% of a parent's total utterances to their children, That higher number is one in every 12 and a half things a parent says to the child. It turns out that the more process praise, which again is the praise for trying hard, that children received at a young age as a percentage of total praise, the more likely they would be to attribute their success or failure to characteristics they could change rather than to their inherent abilities. I was surprised to see that the total amount of praise was not linked to how the child attributes their success or failures given the extensive literature on that topic that we reviewed in the episode, Do You Punish Your Child With Rewards? Yet I was shocked to find that even the abstract of the study, normally reserved for the sunniest possible interpretation of the data, states that, quote, parents' early praise of inherent characteristics was not associated with children's later fixed ability frameworks, which means that parents who used process praise were more likely to help children who believed in the value of effort, but parents who used person praise did not necessarily later have children who believed their abilities were fixed. Nevertheless, this study is invariably cited in support of the idea that parents should use process praise on their children. If we continue chronologically through children's lives, the next main study before the mushroom of studies we see in the high school and college years asked about mothers' praise of 120 children aged about 10 years, as reported by the mothers in daily phone calls with researchers over a period of 10 days. While self-reporting is often not a very reliable method of collecting data, the researchers made the apparently reasonable assumption that recounting the day's praise used was a fairly accurate way of summarizing the parents' responses to the day's school successes. 
The abstract here reports the sunny findings. The more parents praised inherent characteristics, the more children believed that intelligence was not malleable and avoided challenging tasks. But the results section holds a little surprise for us. Mother's praise of the process or effort did not predict that their child would be more likely to believe that intelligence is malleable or improve the child's preference for challenging activities. So in short, praising inherent characteristics is bad, but praising effort doesn't help the child either, which directly contradicts the original mindset study. Once again, I direct you back to our episode called Do You Punish Your Child With Rewards? and encourage you to consider whether praise really is necessary at all. So how does a child change their mindset? For a while, researchers assumed that children model their teacher's and parents' mindset, just like they do their other behavior, or that parents' expectations about the child's mindset would somehow cause the child to develop that mindset, in the same way that parents' and teachers' perception of a child's competence predicts the child's own perception of their competence. But it turns out that parents' mindsets about intelligence is not significantly related to their children's mindsets, but rather it is the parents' beliefs about failure as motivating or demotivating, as well as their responses to their children's failure, that predicts children's responses. And this relationship even held true when the researchers controlled for the parents' perception of the child's competence. I should point out, though, that this article by Kyla Hamovitz and Carol Dweck is shown in corrected form in the journal in which it was published because apparently the title they originally gave it, and certain sentences in the book, overstated the link between parents' own intelligence mindsets and their children's mindsets. More worryingly, the study's results section presents a table showing a correlation between parents' failure mindset and children's intelligence mindsets. The researchers used a value called P that must be usually less than 0.05 for a finding to be considered significant. But the study's results say that these factors were only correlated to P equals less than 0.5, 10 times greater than it should be to show significance. Yet the study's discussion section goes on to discuss the results as if they were statistically significant. Assuming there is some kind of relationship here, this finding has the alarming implication for many parents that all the good jobs in the world won't actually help your child to develop a growth mindset. But it's whether you accept and allow them to fail and help them to figure out what happened and how they can do better next time that's far more important and potentially more difficult as well. It's also possible that children can change their mindsets based on information they are given about what children in social groups do. One fascinating study by Dr. Andre Simpian of the University of Illinois and his colleagues gave children aged four to seven some new puzzles to do. If they were boys, they were told either boys are really good at these puzzles, or girls are really good at these puzzles, or there is a boy who is really good at these puzzles. The girls received similar messages as well, stating that girls were good or not good at the puzzles, or there was a single girl who was good at them. It turned out that it doesn't matter whether the children thought they belonged in the group that did or did not do well at the puzzles. If they thought there was a group of children who did puzzles well, their own performance dropped. The researchers believe that children build theories to explain and understand what they observe, and when an adult tells them that children like them are either good or bad at the task, the children come to believe that they don't have much control over their achievement outcomes, because their success or failure is a function of their membership in a group, rather than due to any effort that they put in. Just like with Dr. Dweck's work, and she actually wasn't involved in this study, The effect was generated so easily by someone the children barely knew saying just a few words about a stereotype of people that, 
In one group, the experiments created a difference in performance between groups who were and were not exposed to the stereotype information that were comparable with the baseline difference in performance between four and five-year-olds and five and six-year-olds. As we move up to look at school-aged children, a study by Dr. Dave Ponescu and others at Stanford, including Carol Dweck, has found that an online 45-minute intervention where students read an article describing the brain's ability to grow and reorganize itself as a consequence of hard work and good strategies on challenging tasks caused these students to earn satisfactory grades in core academic courses at a 6% higher rate than a control group, which was a statistically significant difference. But the devil is, once again, in the results section, the intervention actually seemed to be correlated with a small reduction in the GPA of students who were not previously at risk of dropping out, with a rather larger positive effect size on students who were at risk for dropping out. Perhaps this is actually a good finding for educators, but for the parents of toddlers and preschoolers who are probably among the more advantaged children out there, this finding is not exactly what one might have hoped. Much of the research on mindsets is typically experimental in nature. Children report information about their mindset, they're assigned to an intervention to change their mindset or a control that gets generic information about the brain, and then they probably also have to do some weird problems that they've never seen before to assess what happens when they succeed or fail, and then they're asked again about their mindset. Professor Jennifer Schmidt at Michigan State University and her colleagues wanted to try a more naturalistic approach. They did a fairly intensive in-class intervention with 369 students in one full science class over six weeks. The students were divided between 7th and 9th grades with a racially mixed and relatively economically disadvantaged sample. At the end of the study, 9th graders who went through the growth mindset intervention reported feeling more in control of their learning, which was the primary variable studied, but the effect did not hold for the 7th graders whose sense of control dropped over the study period just as much as the control group. The researchers observed there was a universal decline, in the US at least, in interest in science education over the course of a student's school career, that this intervention did not counteract in seventh graders. The researchers observed that this loss of interest and motivation for science may occur because students have few opportunities for autonomy in science learning, or because they view science content as challenging, or conversely, because they don't think teachers are challenging students enough. The first part of the explanation is the most consistent with research that I reviewed for my psychology master's thesis on what motivates children to learn, which is that children learn what is interesting to them. To me, this gets at the crux of the inconsistent findings related to mindset research in schools. Students are told to be interested in a topic because it's on the curriculum and not because they find it inherently interesting. Mindset interventions aim to increase a student's competence at learning, but do nothing about the issue of a lack of control over what they're learning in the first place. Perhaps the better thing to do would be to get rid of curriculum and then we might find we didn't need mindset research anymore altogether. Professor David Yeager, who is now at the University of Texas at Austin, but was formerly Professor Dweck's student at Stanford, has emerged as the next bearer of the mindset torch. He says research and theory suggest that there are three conditions needed to successfully implement a mindset approach. Firstly, it successfully targets students' beliefs about themselves and their educational environments. Secondly, it's delivered in a psychologically precise and potent way. And thirdly, it taps into recursive processes in school, which he means virtuous cycles that sustain the efforts of the initial intervention. So looking at these one by one, he's saying firstly that researchers need to understand the specific beliefs that students have to know how to change these. For example, both Native American and African American students have been shown to be highly unmotivated by a typical individualistic approach of changing your mindset so you can do better in school. 
African-American students preferred communal values showing it is a good idea for students to help each other learn and that they can learn a lot of important things from each other. While a Native American school apparently exhibited a dramatic turnaround after instituting an intervention in which the predominant message was, quote, you help your community when you grow your brain. Although I have to say, I couldn't find the specific paper describing that Native American case, and I rely on Professor Yeager's description of it. The challenge, of course, is to tap into characteristics that are universal enough to allow the intervention to be scaled, but specific enough that the students see these as relevant. This can be especially challenging among students who don't see the point of school, both in the short and long terms. Some students may see their day-to-day work as irrelevant since it was chosen by someone else and because they don't find it interesting. These are precisely the kinds of students that the mindset proponents want to reach. But to me, it seems like our task is a difficult one. We're essentially saying, if you work harder and use different strategies, you could get better at these things you don't care about. One way we might be able to get around this would be to ask students to set long-term goals and then help them see how graduating from school will help them to achieve these goals, even if school seems like a waste of time in the short term. The second point, delivery in a psychologically precise and potent way, means that we make use of proven techniques to change the way people think. So rather than just telling students over and over again, if you work hard, you will succeed, it's better to involve students in developing their own strategies to overcome challenges and then help the students get these strategies ingrained in their brains by suggesting they teach the strategies to someone else. So when a student struggles with reading comprehension, rather than telling him to read the passage again, work with him to come up with ways of improving his comprehension, like asking a classmate to explain words he doesn't understand or looking at words in the dictionary. He can then share these strategies with other friends whom he sees struggling, or he might even share the higher level information about mindsets, about working hard and developing their own strategies to overcome problems. We can also use the people like me tactic. People are more inclined to do something when people like me do it too which is why telephone salespeople will tell you that a lot of people find solution X valuable and solution X just happens to be the mid-price solution so you feel better by not buying the most expensive thing. Just think back to my example with the drawing. I saw the drawings by people like me who couldn't draw and who learned to draw, which made me believe that I could learn to draw as well. So when students feel that people like them can graduate school and go on to college if they put their mind to it, they're more likely to study, do homework and set goals to achieve school graduation. The final point about tapping into recursive processes in schools is about using things like natural transition points as good places to introduce interventions. It's normal for students to feel anxious when they start or change schools, for example, so helping them to figure out growth mindset strategies in this period when they're receptive to new information about learning how to make the new system work for them can mean they retain the information more effectively. In fact, Professor Yeager has done some good initial work to improve GPAs and reduced the risk of dropping out at the University of Texas at Austin. Another problem with implementing the growth mindset in schools is that unless someone does develop an online program that's somehow massively scalable and yet also relevant to individual students' needs, we rely on teachers to implement the intervention. Professor Jennifer Schmidt from MSU did a study where she worked with two teachers whom she calls Donna and Celia, who were implementing a mindset program. Both teachers expressed interest in the intervention and were found to have a growth mindset in terms of science intelligence. Yet the way in which they actually taught was very different. Celia was more likely to compare students against each other, emphasize that a student was one of the best, remind them about points or grades, offer a reward, and contact parents with either positive or negative reports. 
She did also endorse telling students that hard work is the key to success and was more likely to report teaching strategies for learning than Donna, although the practices the researchers actually observed Celia doing were quite different than what she said. Professor Dweck calls this a false growth mindset, where we say, I have a growth mindset, but our actions don't reflect this statement. When handing out a worksheet, Celia would say, I know this is boring, but it's easy peasy and you're going to be tested on it. When her students were challenged academically, she would offer immediate help instead of emphasizing the importance of challenge and effort for learning, which could have conveyed the message that students were incapable of addressing challenges on their own. Celia would also set up competitions between classes such that if her class beat the other class's performance, then they could do less work or get bonus points on a subsequent quiz. Both teachers implemented the same mindset intervention and both said they believed in the value of the growth mindset, but the messages they conveyed to their students were very different, and Celia's messages were at odds with the messages in the intervention. This likely explains why Donna's students were much more likely to believe that intelligence is malleable and also achieve significantly higher grades than Celia's, both immediately following the intervention and also at a later follow-up. And this intervention was conducted with two teachers who were really interested in mindset, which is not always how it goes. A more common way that mindset approaches are introduced in schools is that administrators learn about it, and then a week before classes start, when the teachers have already spent the summer preparing their lectures, the administration says, do it this way or else. One master's student at the University of Texas at Austin interviewed teachers who said that the blanket mindset approach was implemented without regard to individual students' needs, which made teachers feel a loss of control over the way they could teach in their own classroom. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the last decade or so of focus on mindsets has failed to result in any appreciable increase in objective measures of student achievement, since these are the measures administrators care most about, when they're implemented by teachers who aren't given much opportunity to learn about it, explore it, develop their own growth mindsets before using their new knowledge to benefit their students. This finding was echoed by the results of a national survey of more than 600 kindergarten through grade 12 teachers by the online news organization Education Week, which found that 98% of teachers think that using growth mindset in the classroom will lead to improved student learning, but only 20% of teachers strongly believe they're good at fostering a growth mindset in their own students, even though 85% have been trained on it. We know that one and done professional training doesn't work. So if we really want our students to develop a growth mindset, we really need to do a better job of training teachers to teach it. As we head toward a conclusion, I want to think a bit more holistically about mindset and its implications for use in our classrooms. Self-determination theory of motivation, or SDT, is a highly influential theory, although unfortunately our schools have yet to incorporate all the elements of it. SDT says that all people have a need to experience autonomy, competence, and relatedness, and that people will be highly motivated to engage in activities and will perform better with greater persistence and creativity when all three conditions are met. Mindset addresses one of these three issues in that it aims to increase a student's competence. But it still leaves out two very important areas, which we also now see are important. The autonomy to feel as though one controls one's own actions rather than being controlled by others, and relatedness with other people like teachers and students. Taking autonomy first, as we've discussed, the reason we find it hard to motivate students, the reason we need to motivate students, is because somebody else has decided what they need to learn and how they should learn it, and how much of it they should learn and when, and it really isn't any wonder that a lot of them really aren't so interested in that approach. If we change the way we operate in schools and allowed students to follow their interests, 
then we might still need to help them develop new strategies for attacking problems after they fail, but we probably wouldn't need to get them to try to work harder. We are trying to teach students that they have control over their outcomes when a great deal of the control in a learning situation is actually held by the school. Picking up another point on that, I want to make clear something that's been mentioned in a number of the studies but doesn't get as much press as the trying hard part of the approach, and that's the importance of trying different strategies if the one your child is using isn't working. There's not much point in just trying harder using the same strategies you've always used because that will probably just leave her feeling like she's banging her head against the wall. Instead, when you see that what she's doing isn't working, you can encourage her to take a step back and try and see why it isn't working and what she can do to modify her approach the next time. This kind of metacognition or thinking about thinking is an enormously useful skill that children and even adults can use in all kinds of different situations to improve their performance and outcomes. In a report for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, itself a proponent of testing to ensure educational quality, Professor Dweck describes many of the outcomes we've already discussed, but goes on to examine other topics that can also have an impact on a child's learning. One is social belonging, which is the idea that students form relationships with teachers and with other students that make them want to succeed, which corresponds to the relatedness of self-determination theory. Perhaps you remember a special teacher who took an interest in you, and that caused you to stick with a subject that you might have otherwise abandoned. Professor Nell Noddings' work focuses on the importance of teachers caring for students and students caring for each other, and a study of her ideas found that perceived caring from teachers was related significantly and positively to students' academic effort, as well as to internal control beliefs, or the belief that one can control one's own destiny. This should cause us to examine the highly individualistic nature of the growth mindset, which says that the effort you put in is something that's within your power to change, for which you are responsible for changing so you can achieve more. As we already saw, there are many students for whom that message simply doesn't resonate very much. And for these students, caring is especially important. Ironically, it may be these students who miss out the most on caring relationships with teachers since we know it's more difficult for people to form empathetic and caring relationships with people who are different from them, and the more than 80% white teaching workforce is not well aligned with the more than 50% of students who are of non-dominant cultures in the U.S. Professor Dweck also notes the importance of self-regulation and self-control, which she says is an even stronger predictor of success than a student's IQ score, although the graph from a study by our old friend Professor Duckworth of the episode on grit actually doesn't support this assertion for all students. Self-discipline does predict academic performance better than IQ for students in the highest and second highest quintiles, but this relationship did not hold true for the students in the lowest three quintiles of academic performance. I went back to Professor Duckworth's paper in which she says, quote, These results suggest that self-discipline has a bigger effect on academic performance than does intellectual talent. When, firstly, as I've just explained, these results only hold true for high achievers. And secondly, the study only looked at correlations between the two factors and not causations. It's possible that doing well in school leads one to develop a growth mindset. So self-discipline is also an important factor, but may not be as important for all students as IQ a largely hereditable trait and not one that can be taught. We should also acknowledge that there's an inherent discrepancy between what we say when we say we value a growth mindset and what schools use to assess academic process. 
When we say we value a growth mindset, we say we embrace trying new things and failing at them and learning from those failures to develop new strategies to be successful on difficult, challenging tasks that are important to a student. But what schools actually reward is the ability to memorize information the school says is important and pass a standardized test on that material, because that's how states judge schools' quality. It's how parents judge schools' quality. And under the unfortunate Race to the Top initiative that came out of the Obama administration, it's how teacher quality is measured as well. So perhaps we shouldn't be enormously surprised that the last decade or so of implementing growth mindset interventions hasn't led to any increase in test scores across the country, which tend to hover between the 25th and 50th percentiles on average in reading and math, both in 4th and 8th grades. In addition, Professor Duckworth and Professor Yeager collaborated on a paper which specifically argued against using non-cognitive measures like grit and mindset for accountability purposes until better measures are developed. But the state of California is ignoring those recommendations and implementing tests of mindset as a part of measures of school district success anyway. Finally, I want to address the assertion that a changed mindset is the thing that will help poor children to overcome their unfortunate circumstances and excel in school. Susanna Claro was a Chilean doctoral student at Professor Dweck's and used a massive Chilean data set to look at this. The Chilean government administers a standardized math and language test to all 10th graders in the country every other year. It also surveys the student, their family, and the school. And in 2012, it began including a short form of the test that Professor Dweck uses to measure students' mindset. Students with a growth mindset outperformed their fixed mindset peers at every family income level to a statistically significant degree. Students' mindsets and family income were linked, and students from the lowest income families were twice as likely to have a fixed mindset as students from the top families and schools, a pretty impressive finding. To their credit, the authors don't try and claim that teaching students a growth mindset is a substitute for systemic efforts to alleviate poverty and economic equality. Instead, they argue that structural inequalities can give rise to psychological inequalities that end up reinforcing the impact of the structural inequalities. So we shouldn't just say, look, poor people, if you just shifted your mindset, you could get yourself out of this mess. But rather, as we work on reducing structural inequality, that shifting toward a growth mindset could be another tool that we use to support historically disadvantaged students. In reality, we will never be all growth mindset, just as we were never all fixed mindset. I was able to shift my fixed mindset related to drawing, But while I believe my fixed mindset related to my math ability probably could be shifted if I put the time and effort into it, I haven't yet had the time or prioritized the effort to make that happen. So in conclusion, what are we to take of this mess of studies that have Professor Dweck's fingerprints as well as a host of statistical and other errors all over them? Well, it does seem safe to conclude that if you work harder at something, you're more likely to succeed at it. And two big meta-analyses of studies related to mindset found that people who believe human attributes are malleable rather than fixed and who work harder to achieve their goals are generally more likely to engage in behaviors and strategies that would improve their performance. Some wise sage told us a long time ago that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So the idea of trying a different strategy if the one you're currently using doesn't work does seem to make intuitive sense. Professor Dweck has noted that she isn't motivated by money to keep pursuing this research. She does get about 20 grand for a speaking engagement, but she says she told a BuzzFeed reporter that, quote, I care much more about my credibility and my legacy, my contribution, than about any financial compensation, end quote. 
but it does seem possible that her desire to create and protect this legacy has led to some slightly dodgy statistical work that may well have overstated the magnitude of the potential impacts of mindset shifts. So feel free to encourage your child to try hard, to use new strategies to overcome problems, and to help them see that if they haven't mastered a concept, then they haven't mastered it yet. Just don't expect it to be the single variable that helps your child succeed. Or, if you're fortunate enough to live above the poverty level, be even a particularly important factor in their later success. If you'd like to take a look at any of the 32 research papers, blog articles, and the like that I reviewed for this paper, you can find them at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash mindset. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.